0: Tassa bhagavato rahato sammasambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato rahato sammasambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato rahato you know, so in the um, in the Buddha's teachings, the story is is that on the night of the enlightenment, the Buddha was sitting underneath the Bodhi tree. Actually, before he was a Buddha, and uh, you know, there are all kinds of things that came to him to tempt him off of his seat, of his resolve and his intention to be free. And, you know, I think many of us can relate that, you know, we get knocked off balance by our desires. You know, so the first thing that came was the hosts of Mara and the disguise of desire. And, you know, that seems like something that's pretty universal. You know, the things that we want, the things that we long for, the things that we hunger for. Sometimes it, it, it takes us away from our aspirations and our, our deepest longing to be free. We get absorbed into into that, into the pursuit of that, into the acquisition of that, into the having of that. I mean, it's a fascinating conversation as to which desires actually do that for us. And I would be curious to see if we would notice any demographics between you know, the way desire expresses itself and the particularities of it in terms of gender or in terms of culture or in terms of different things, what that looks like. But desire as an underlying principle, I think, is universal that we all experience. And the particularities of it might shift depending on certain kinds of conditioning. You know. And that would be an interesting conversation. And the second host of Mara confusion that came to knock the Buddha off of his resolve was the experience of anger or ill will. You know, and again, I think demographically, if we looked at the way we experience anger, we would probably notice some differences. You know, so when I was living in community with monastics, I noticed that the men, when they got angry at each other, would duke it out, you know. Mm -hmm. And the women, when they got angry at each other, they would poison the other one's sense of belonging in the community. And so it was absolutely vicious, but expressed in a totally different way, you know. And so, you know, the way we dealt with anger or experienced it was very different. And yet we both, you know, gender, we both we had the anger as issues that would knock us off of our aspiration to be free and to do things which were not harmful and to be a, a kind of a presence that was clear and supportive for other beings. But what was curious to me in the story of the Buddhas is that the last host of Mara that came came in the form of doubt And, you know, you think, come on, you know, somebody who's going to be a Buddha doesn't doubt, you know. But that's not the case. There was doubt. And the doubt came and expressed itself as, you know, who do you think you are to be free from suffering? Why do you think you can be enlightened? And, you know, and then I question because for many of us, I wonder if that's our primary doubt, you know. And I think, you know, for some of us, we're coming from a slightly different level, where, you know, we're not asking ourselves what is our right to be enlightened. You know, for some people, our doubt is do I have the right to exist? Is it okay for me to be here? Do I belong? Am I fundamentally okay or is there something basically wrong with me? And so, you know, we're coming from a perspective where we're experiencing doubt, but the way we're experiencing it is at a slightly different level. You know, we're not... We're not looking at it in terms of our ultimate capacity to be free, but in terms of our human experience of how we are framing the sufferings that we have experienced and how it's related to me, you know. And so, you know, I see some of the stuff that some of the people that I know navigate, and sometimes the normal kinds of griefs and vicissitudes of life. Land into a place where it feels like there's something fundamentally wrong with me. You know, there's something basically wrong, and that's the reason why I don't have what I feel that I need in order to be complete, because there's something fundamentally wrong. You know? So the reason why I was interested in the topic tonight came from the conversation that I had the last time I was down, and I was speaking at the Fort Collins group, and this came up. And the topic was rich, and the discussion was rich. But it basically centered around the sense that there's something fundamentally wrong with me, and that I cannot move past that. No matter how much work I do, or how good I am, or how much I keep the precepts, or any of those things, the default mechanism is that there's something messed up, fundamentally lacking, and that I can't get past that. All right? So, you know, I thought about it a lot, you know, that sense of that there's something basically bad. Now, this is not the contemporary bad where bad's good. You know? <laughs> this is the old-fashioned bad where bad's bad, you know. And and so I thought, well, you know, how does how's it come to be that people and a lot of people feel that way? It's not like this is a minority or like a small, thin Fragment of the population that are expressing this. This is more and more people I'm seeing experience the sense that there's something fundamentally lacking and wrong and basically out of order with me. And that is the reason why I suffer so much, and that is the reason why I cannot get my needs met. Okay? That's why I don't have the loving relationship or the family or whatever it is that I long for so deeply is because effectively I'm fundamentally unlovable because there's something wrong with me. Okay. So when I was reflecting on this and I was thinking about it in terms of a larger perspective, there's a couple things that I thought of and whether it's useful to have frameworks to name or to label this stuff, I don't know. But you know, for me, you know, we are in a in a in a culture that has a has a Christian basis of original sin that underlies the, the ethos of what we're dealing with. And so, you know, and so that thinking, whether or not we are born into a system that has actually ascribed it into our into our conditioning, is something which I think is driving some of this sense. Is is that there's a there's a there's a patterning or a belief system that you know that to be born we have fundamentally made a mistake and the mistake of being born is 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 that we are we have perpetuated a state of sin that needs to somehow be resolved. Okay? That's one thing. The other thing is 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 that in the in the movement of a traditional society to a modern society or a postmodern society, there was this huge kind of of um, shift from people feeling a sense of belonging in communities and villages and networks and systems to all of that kind of falling apart and an enormous amount of existential suffering started to emerge amongst people who didn't used to have that. So highly educated middle class, upper middle class, wealthy people started to experience this kind of endemic sense of, you know, how does this fit? Where do I belong? Life feels completely meaningless and purposeless, and I don't know where I fit into this whole picture, okay? It doesn't make any sense at all. But because there was no place to locate that, you know, you couldn't locate it in the family or you couldn't locate it in any particular thing. It seems like part of what has happened is that sense of of dis-ease got internalized. If I can't locate it outside, then it has to have been originated inside. It's someplace inside of me. That's why I feel so rotten, because it's in here, you know. It's not in here, but that's what we can do. The other thing, and I've seen this a lot, you know, this is that when a... When, when children come from families that are very dysfunctional, you know, one of the survival mechanisms of a child is to internalize the lack because it's safer to internalize the lack and feel that oneself is the source of the problem than to touch the level of lack of safety that one is actually navigating in the surrounding environments. So if you've been in a situation either that has been abusive or has been neglectful or has been absent or just has not attended to who you are and what your needs have been, the way a child deals with that is to say, well, the reason why that has been that way is because there's something the matter with me. And that psychologically is a safer thing to do than to recognize that one is in an unsafe environment. Now, as a survival mechanism, it's very useful as an infant or as a child or as a young, as an adolescent. But if we take that and solidify that view and carry that into our adult life, then our perception is is that there's something wrong with me and it carries with us into everything that we do. All right. So when I reflect on it and see the different reasons why these things can be there, we can get some sense or a framework of why it is that we can feel that way. Now, having a sense of a framework of why does not necessarily mean that it's not there. But it gives us a sense that it's not our fault that we feel that way, okay? That there are actually causes and conditions why we feel that way, and most of them are totally out of our control, right? But what is really helpful if this is something that we're dealing with is to figure out what's the path and how do we work with it. How do we actually get underneath this stuff and start to release it so that our default mechanism when we're dealing with the natural vicissitudes of life is not that it's landing back into that space again, but that we're actually moving forward into something else now. I mentioned that tomorrow I'm offering the precepts for anybody who would like to come. Now, having precepts, keeping precepts, reflecting on the precepts that one keeps is one way of shifting a negative sense of self-image with a positive sense of self-image, where when we have appropriate boundaries in terms of our behavior and our commitment not to harm and we reflect on that, then it gives us a ground of contemplating that we actually have a reason to feel okay about ourselves or even good about ourselves. And it is a useful container to develop, to cultivate, and to polish. Now, one of the things I've noticed in the lay scene is that there's very little emphasis on the precepts. You know, precepts are sort of like dried prunes or something. <laughs> you know, they're not cool. No, they're just—I don't know what they are. But these, are like, you know, anybody who's cool is not taking the precepts. And it's like, you know, I don't know where these ideas come from, but, you know, what one needs to do is to develop a container and a path that actually allows us to move through the stuff that we're having to navigate in a way that supports an ease and well-being that is really conducive with where we want to go, right? Precepts is fundamental in being able to do that. Now, what I can relate to, and i certainly be up for renegotiating, is how do we do this in a way that is empowering? So the old model, which is that in the monastery, the monks and the nuns give the precepts, may be something that needs to be renegotiated. You know, we need to actually have a conversation about how do we do this that actually feels invigorating, You know, alive, that actually puts the power in the place where the power needs to be, which is in your own intention and your own commitment, and doing it in a way that celebrates with others. So I'm up for a conversation about how do we do this in a way that does the right thing rather than the wrong things. But fundamentally, keeping the precepts is really important to know that that is a way out of the morass. That's a way out of the crevasse. That's a way to shift the sense that I'm basically no good into a sense, well, actually, you know, I have not hurt anybody today. I haven't I haven't slugged them. You know, I haven't kicked them. I haven't ripped them to shreds. <laughs> you know, and so we don't ever think about those things. What happens is we think about all the emotional stuff that feels rotten but we don't think about the stuff that we haven't done. You know, how many people today killed somebody? I mean, you might have thought you wanted to, but that's actually very different, you know? And so when we, we take the opportunity to cultivate the precepts and reflect on the things that we have not done, so we don't obsess about the places where we transgress, but we reflect on the things that we actually have kept, then we begin to start shifting the tide from sinking into this mud to moving towards light. Okay? And we can think, that's actually noble, it's worthy, it's worthy of our attention that we have not deliberately harmed anybody today. And to reflect on that, to take note of that, to remember that. All right? So precepts is one thing, and generosity is another. Now, one of the things about generosity is is that it's not only the person that is being served that benefits. But one of the reasons why generosity has been so strongly emphasized in the Buddha's path is because it tethers us to our own goodness. It brings us in direct access to our own capacity to put other people's needs in front of our own. That capacity to tether ourselves to our own goodness is hugely important for moving out of the mud and the muck and the morass and the carvass into the light. Into the light of our own goodness, of our own potential. And so one of the ways in which having monastics around is useful is because our life is dependent upon Generosity. And so there's natural ways where generosity is just a normal part of what happens. If you've got monastics that live in the way I do, then there's easy ways that generosity has to happen. If you can see me living, you know that there's been generosity that's happened. You know that. And so if you're feeling bummed out, if you think about the fact that I'm living entirely on the generosity of other people, you know that can brighten your mind. It's really a good thing to do. Now, I was living in a monastery a number of years ago, and there was a young woman who came from a very dysfunctional, abusive family. And we talked a lot. I knew her well. And I asked her to do a particular practice. And she looked at me like I had just asked her to clean out the pit toilet without gloves and without a shovel. (laughs) You know, it was like such disgust on her face. You could not believe it. What I asked her to do was to reflect on her goodness. Okay? Now, in Asian cultures, they do this as a deliberate practice. They keep a good karma book, like a diary, and anytime they do anything good, They give a meal, they make an offering, they make a contribution, they spend a work day or whatever, they write it down. They write down the day and what they did and who they helped. And you think, oh, that's insane, you know. But when they were low or when they were depressed or when they were sick or towards their death, either they would bring out the good karma book and read it themselves or if they couldn't focus, they would have somebody else read it to them and think about what that might be like to reflect on the good things that you have done periodically. So when we're sunk into the morass, our mind does not gravitate towards the things that we have been doing that have been skillful. We are absorbed and obsessed in everything that's dark and difficult and painful, and the stuff that feels like it absolutely is is intractable and it hasn't shifted and is not going to shift, You know, it doesn't move towards the light, and we cannot remember the things that we have done which are skillful. So, if we make a specific notebook for those things and pull it out when we're feeling rotten, or we're going through grief or loss, or we're navigating something that's really difficult, just feel what it feels like. So, you know, I would ask to try it out. You know, see what it feels like. See what it feels like to get a notebook and to reflect on the things that you have done in your life that have been for kind reasons for other people. Write it down. What does it feel like to do that as a project? You know, to make a point of it. So there's precepts, there's generosity, there's reflecting on one's own goodness, there's community. And so if we can't remember ourselves, another person can help mirror for us, you know, where somebody is actually reminding you of the stuff that you're not remembering yourself. And if you get looped into habits that are self-destructive or self-disparaging or all that kind of stuff, you know, what would happen if the communities that we were part of had an agreement Which is that basically, no, it's not okay for you to trash yourself in front of me. I will not accept you doing that. Time out. You know, that is not a skillful way of talking about yourself or relating to yourself. And you can't do that in front of me. So what would happen if as a community of people, people got underneath each other's skin and there was enough trust and safety to make that kind of a commitment? Where if we saw each other engaging in behaviors like that, it was okay to say, no, don't do that. It's not okay to trash yourself in front of me. You know, what would that be like? And what would it be like to say that to somebody else? You know, to say, stop. This is not going into something that's healthy and productive and something that we are committed to moving towards. Stop. Stop. So we've got the precepts, we've got generosity, we have the capacity to reflect on generosity, we have the community, all right? This begins to bring us some leverage. There is the practice of metta, all right? And there's the practice of forgiveness. Now one of the problems that happens with people who've got a deep-seated sense of being basically no good is they've got no ground for the metta to begin You know, I cannot generate love because I'm effectively unlovable. And I cannot forgive because I'm unforgivable. And the unforgivable solidifies the fact that we are not forgivable. The inability to bring love makes it real that we are unlovable. So these things loop and perpetuate each other. And so we need to find a way through this in order to be able to to move into something else. But how do you feel love when you don't feel love? How do you bring forward something if it's not something you have an easy access to? And that requires skill. And so what we need to do is we need to connect with where we do feel that, you know, And so, you know, the classic thing is to think phrases about oneself and to bring that forward. But if you don't feel it, then what's the point of doing that, you know? So for me, I don't start with that, and I don't use phrases because I've never been able to connect with phrases. You know, I'm a feeling person. I'm not a conceptual person. And so for me, what's important is that I get a feeling of what that love is like. And so I can do that by remembering being with certain people that were tremendously loving or being in certain situations that felt absolutely embracing. You know, I've got a strong connection with animals. Sometimes you can feel it with them. So it doesn't matter where it comes from. What matters is that you can feel it. You know? So whether it's with you know, the Dalai Lama, or whether it's with a mountain, or whether it's with the sun that shines no matter whether or not anybody is worthy, you know, whether it's your animals, whether it's grandma, or even just the archetypical image of a mother nursing a child, or the feeling of the earth holding us, it doesn't matter where it comes from. What's matter is, is that we can feel connected to that sense, and then bring that in feel it, know it, let it begin to seep into our own bodies that we get a feeling sense of what that feels like and let it saturate our systems and then as we feel saturated with it it is not just like a little bit of moisture on a desiccated sponge but it actually moves through our systems from there we're in the position to share it out with others but most of us, because of whatever conditioning that we've got, it takes a while before we're saturated. And so it's premature to be handing it over before we actually know what it is. You can't give something until you have it. You know? So the Buddhist concept of altruism is brilliant when you're coming from a perspective of a basis when some of us come from a perspective of a lack, then we've got some other work that we need to do. And the talk that I'm going to give Sunday night at the Inside Denver group has to do about the difference between developing a healthy sense of self and anatta, which is letting go of a permanent idea or sense of self. And developmentally, they are very different and distinct things and both need to be attended to. And it's absolutely a mistake to use the transcendent teachings of anatta in order to dismiss the developmental work of where we need to go as a human being to get to a level ground where we have enough to give. And it's endemic in a Buddhist world that this happens. And I'll talk about that more on Sunday. So, forgiveness... Now, I don't know about you. I don't know you that well. Some of you I know a little bit better than others. But I know myself. And in my own personal world, there has never been a more difficult person to forgive than myself. Never. No matter what kind of terrible things that have happened, or difficulties, or challenges, somehow what's happened is I have taken blame or personal responsibility for it. And to forgive myself has been an enormous enterprise, which is tied in to this other thing that I was talking about. The fact that there's somehow a feeling that there's something fundamentally wrong, and it's my fault. If it wasn't my fault, it wouldn't be wrong. So, you know, there's something that's gotten twisted and solidified, hardwired into the system, so to forgive myself has been a really big thing. And it goes hand in hand as I'm able to see that and forgive myself and realize, no, it is not my fault. Obviously, I've got developmental tasks that I need to attend to and things that I need to work on, but it's not my fault then I'm able also to forgive others when things happen and go skiddly-wampus or people betray or hurt or do all of the 10,000 things. They betray, they hurt, they abandon, they slander. Terrible things happen. And the hurt can sometimes be so deep. You know, it just goes so deep. But when I can forgive myself, I can also forgive others. I know that the mistakes that I have made have come always from a place of ignorance. It has never once been the case that I was acting in full balance and did something that deliberately hurt somebody else. It's never been the case. And so it brings us around to the last point, which in a way is the most important point or a significant point. Which is that rather than coming from the perspective of original sin in the Buddhist perspective, we come from a perspective of original purity. That fundamentally, essentially, there isn't anything wrong. The mind is luminous, undefiled, radiant, spacious, timeless. That is our nature. Unconditioned love is our nature. It's not a condition that we cultivate. It's our nature. And so when we can reflect on that, get a sense that that is actually the reality, when we have a sense that that is our basis, when we can touch into that, time tiny little moment sometimes when you're just outside and you look up at the sky you know and you recognize not any different from this huge vast spaciousness you know or you can just for a moment feel the kind of web of life that's pulsing that you are completely in the middle of not separate from not distinct from that is who you are you know, when we are transported into seeing our luminosity, then there's a kind of huge dispelling of darkness. And so rather than dealing with the stuff like a digging a trench to reshovel the, the way the water flows from one way to another way, it's like switching on the lights, you know, in a sports stadium and the whole huge area lights up, you know. It's different than the specific tasks of doing the work to shift the water to flow from one thing to another thing, to kind of changing the perspective so that we are standing in a vast space and knowing that that is really who we are. And that these thoughts that come up and that these patterns that we experience and the feelings are conditions that arise within this vast space. They are not the truth. But we can't just feel that and hang out there forever and so we need to bring that sense into the reality of what does arise and work with the conditions we have to do the work both developmentally of knowing who we are and how come our conditioning is the way that it is and shifting the tide so that we move out of the self disparaging I'm no good, the reason why I don't have the love in my life I want is because I'm effectively unlovable To knowing that what I am fundamentally is unconditioned love. That is my nature. That is what is there when everything falls away. That is what is there independent of whether I get what I want or I don't get what I want. Whether my goals and aspirations are fulfilled or not. That is my nature. And that no matter what happens, it's going to be okay because I know who I am and where I belong in the large picture of things. essential nature of the mind is radiant, luminous, and undefiled. Timeless. There's nothing we could ever possibly do to change that. To alter that. To eradicate that. Our work is to realize that, to embody that, to live with that as our basis. But the truth of that does not shift depending on the choices that we make. So each of us is in the position of making choices of what we want to do with our lives and how we want to spend our energy and what's of importance and what's not important. And each of us is in a task that's both a spiritual task of understanding these deep, profound truths and a developmental task Whereas human beings we've got certain things that we need to understand about who we are, what our needs are and how we want to move in order to have ourselves living a life that feels full and whole. And yet when we intersect these kind of developmental tasks and these transcendent spiritual tasks... When we work with the conditionings of our life to bring about a sense of skillfulness with precepts and generosity and cultivating metta and understanding forgiveness, as well as opening the mind and the heart and the body to touch into this timeless, ever-present, all-conditioned radiance. For me, this is the embodiment of a whole, integrated life. Peace and fulfillment. Enough. I'll stop here. We can have a few minutes break, come back and have a discussion. Thank you for listening.